0: Greetings, my friends, and welcome to the show. I hope you are all doing well. Today we are on to Part 8 in our Ernest Shackleton series, tying it for the longest series we have ever produced. As we have quite a few episodes remaining, Shackleton will shatter our length record. And I want to make a comment about this. A big reason the series is so long is that we just have so much about Shackleton compared to other explorers due to the fact that he was traipsing about Antarctica barely a 100 years ago. It allows us to get a really in-depth look at Shackleton's public and personal lives. Also, we really get a unique look at the day-to-day experience of his expeditions. It's not something we normally have access to, which is why we have leaned so much into that part of the series. Anyhow, today we have two main tasks to cover. First, we will tag along with Shackleton and the Men of Endurance as we try and figure out how to get off the ice pack in the Weddell Sea. Second thing we have to do is to go check out the Aurora team, This was the group of men that were traveling from Australia to the Ross Sea area. Their job was to lay supplies from the coast to the base of Beardmore Glacier. So there you go. That's what we have on the agenda for today. I am going to start with the second item, the Aurora team. Let's get cracking. The Ross Sea Party is sort of the forgotten element of the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. History mostly has focused on Ernest Shackleton, so what these men went through is often forgotten, but not by us however, know that our coverage of the Aurora team won't be as in-depth as what we are doing with Shackleton. But it is part of the expedition, so it's important that we don't forget it. So, the Ross Sea Party was tasked with laying a series of supply depots across the Great Ice Barrier from the Ross Sea to the base of Beardmore Glacier. This was about 400 miles, or 640 kilometers. The idea was that when Shackleton crossed the continent, he'd reach the South Pole and just keep going, and head down Beardmore Glacier, onto the Great Ice Barrier, and to the team's base on the Ross Sea. And while this wasn't a sexy job, it was a critical element to Shackleton's plan. I mean, those supplies had to be there if he was going to succeed. Unfortunately, from the get-go, the Ross Sea team ended up being an afterthought to most everyone, including Shackleton. The group would be poorly funded, leadership was mediocre, and communication was lacking. Anyhow, let us back up a bit in our story. To bring all the men and supplies to Antarctica, Shackleton would purchase the Aurora, which had recently been used by Douglas Mawson on his Antarctic expedition. The ship would sail from Australia. To run things in Australia, Shackleton would turn to Aeneas McIntosh, a veteran of the Nimrod expedition. McIntosh had lost an eye on that expedition in an accident. Another key team member hired by Shackleton was Ernest Joyce, also a veteran of Nimrod. His job was to take charge of the sledges and dogs. Joyce had impressed Shackleton on that expedition, the latter saying, quote, Joyce knows his work well. End quote. Indeed, Joyce was viewed as an extremely capable man, but he had a reputation for being abrasive and arrogant. Another man of note on the team was Ernest Wilde, the brother of Frank Wilde, Shackleton's second in command. McIntosh and his team would arrive in Sydney, Australia, in late October 1914. They would find that Aurora needed an overhaul. The problem with that was money. McIntosh had been given £2,000 for expenses, but as Shackleton was struggling to raise funds, that number was cut in half. McIntosh was told to try and acquire goods and services, and money, through donations and by mortgaging the ship. All of this meant that there were not enough funds to pay the men. This resulted in several of them resigning. Edgeworth David, the respected Australian geologist and the lead scientific officer on Shackleton's Nimrod expedition, would help raise funds for the Aurora team but corners would be cut and many of the new hires lacked desperately needed experience. One example was Adrian Donnelly, who was hired as one of the ship's engineers. Donnelly was actually a locomotive engineer and had no sea experience. Another example was Lionel Hook, hired as the wireless operator. Hook was just 18 years old and only an electrical apprentice. Another questionable replacement added at this time was Arnold Spencer Smith, a reverend and amateur photographer. He had no polar experience. His main qualification seems to have been his willingness to take part in the expedition, nothing more. Despite all of these challenges, McIntosh would manage to get the ship ready, and Aurora would depart from Sydney on December 15, 1914, just as Shackleton was heading into the Weddell Sea. The ship would travel to Hobart, Australia, and take on coal and some additional provisions. She would depart on December 24. Due to all the issues McIntosh had faced, Aurora was leaving between three and six weeks late, the time frame depending on the source that you read. At this point, McIntosh knew that Shackleton had hoped to land at Vassal Bay and begin his trek across the continent that very summer. This meant that McIntosh had to get his depot set up in early 1915. If he didn't, Shackleton would reach the South Pole and then head down Beardmore Glacier and not have any food waiting for him. That would be a disaster. Now, the tragedy here is that McIntosh need not have worried about Shackleton departing for another year. In fact, Shackleton had made that decision before leaving South Georgia Island on December 5th. What had followed was a terrible miscommunication. Weeks before sailing south, Shackleton had sent a letter to London saying that a crossing that summer was not happening. He then said that that information was to be relayed to McIntosh in Australia. But that message was never forwarded. Thus, McIntosh departed for Antarctica, thinking there was a good chance that Shackleton was already on his way and would emerge in the coming months. This gave McIntosh a deep sense of urgency to get his mission underway. Aurora would arrive off Ross Island on January 16th, 1915. McIntosh would establish his base at Cape Evans, which had been Robert Falcon Scott's headquarters on his ill-fated Terra Nova expedition. Thankfully, the team could use the existing structures, so there was no need to build huts. For reference, Cape Evans is about 15 miles, or 24 kilometers, north of Hut Point, which is at the southern tip of Ross Island and the original base of the Discovery expedition. That distance, however, takes you across the Ross Sea, and if on foot, can only be crossed when the ice is stable. Anyhow, McIntosh, determined to get the depot lane project underway, would unload all the supplies intended for Shackleton's team. The depot lane would begin within days. However, McIntosh would make a decision which would lead to a fierce argument between himself and Ernest Joyce. McIntosh would elect to have Aurora frozen in for the winter instead of sending her back to Australia. Joyce who had more experience than anyone in Antarctica couldn't believe the decision saying it was quote, "the silliest damn rot that could have possibly occurred." End quote. The truth is that Mcintosh made some questionable calls during his time in Antarctica and this was one of them. But Joyce's confrontational and condescending attitude would backfire on him with Mcintosh digging in his heels and sticking to his decision. It was an unfortunate situation. Many of the men agreed with Joyce and they quickly came to not trust Mcintosh's leadership. This would lead to all sorts of internal conflicts, which, in the end, helped no one. No matter, Mackintosh was determined to get going on laying the supply depots. He would decide to immediately set out to establish two of them before the weather turned bad. The first would be set up at 79 degrees south, the second at 80 degrees south. At this point, Joyce and Mackintosh would have another argument. Joyce wanted to delay setting up the depots for a week. This would allow the men and dogs—there were 18 sledge dogs— to acclimate to their new environment and each other. Sledge travel with dogs was not a simple thing, and Joyce, who very much believed in it, said that things would go much smoother if the men and dogs got a little experience with each other. But McIntosh rejected the idea. He was determined to get moving. Also, the two men would have another argument about how far the dogs should travel and how much they should pull. McIntosh would win out again. The sledge parties would set out on January 24th and 25th, Four men, all scientists, would remain at Cape Evans, taking readings and measurements. Before leaving, McIntosh ordered Aurora's first officer, 27-year-old Joseph Stenhouse, to find a suitable anchorage for the ship near Cape Evans to ride out the winter. Stenhouse would eventually select a spot not far from their base and in March allow Aurora to be frozen in the ice. It was not a great location, as the ship just wasn't that protected from the elements, but Stenhouse felt that it would be all right for the winter. As a note, the only known safe harbor was at Hut Point, to the south, but McIntosh wanted to use Aurora for the main winter quarters for the men, which is why he needed the ship to be near Cape Evans. So, McIntosh would lead the shore party onto the Great Ice Barrier to lay two depots. The result was a bit of a mess. The operations would take about two months to complete, but not all the supplies made it to the depots. Plus, ten of the dogs would die on the return journey. This would hamper the depot lane going forward. By late March, the six men of the depot lane team would find themselves at Hut Point. They were exhausted and suffering from frostbite. They needed to get to Cape Evans, as that was where all the food and supplies were located. However, there was a problem. To get to Cape Evans, you had to cross the ice, and that was unstable. Thus, they found themselves stranded. They would manage to survive on seal meat and use the blubber for fuel. They would not be able to cross over to Cape Evans until June 1st. And when they got there, they would find that Aurora was gone. Now, I want to back up a few weeks. Remember, Aurora had been iced in for the winter in March. Well, on May 7th, a severe gale would tear Aurora from its moorings and carry it out to sea as part of a larger ice flow. This was a disaster for two reasons. First, the ship was now just gone, and who knows what happened to her. Perhaps she was crushed, or had been carried onto rocks or out to sea. No matter, she was nowhere to be seen. And second, since the ship was being used as the main living quarters for the expedition, most of the team's food and gear was on Aurora. This meant that the shore party had barely any supplies. McIntosh said the men were left with, quote, only the clothes on their backs, end quote. Now, that's being a bit overdramatic. At Cape Evans, there was food and provisions left behind from Scott's and Shackleton's earlier expeditions, and there was seal and penguin meat. Plus, if they were desperate, they could dig into the supplies earmarked for Shackleton. The big thing they were missing was not necessarily food, but supplies, such as clothing and boots and fuel. The men, however, would prove up to the task of survival. There was some stuff at Cape Evans that was usable, and they were able to improvise, enabling them to get enough of what they needed to survive the hard winter. For instance, Joyce would tailor clothing from a large canvas tent left by Scott's team, and Ernest Wilde would make tobacco by combining the leaf that remained with sawdust, tea, coffee, and dried herbs. Thus, the men would hunker down for the long winter. And as spring approached, they could only continue with their duties despite not knowing the fate of Aurora. To start, McIntosh decided to move all the depot stores, 3,800 pounds, or 1,700 kilograms, from Cape Evans to Hutt Point, the latter being closer to the Great Ice Barrier. They would then set up four new supply depots, one at 81, 82, and 83 degrees south, and a final one at the foot of Beardmore Glacier, which was at 83 degrees 30 minutes south. The first phase, moving the supplies to Hutt Point, took most of August, and things went well. The second phase would entail setting up the next three depots. And the third phase would be supplying the final depot at Beardmore Glacier. Setting up the first three new depots would entail nine of the men working in groups of three. They would strike out from hut point, bringing their supplies to their designated locations, and then head back. Now, there was a major problem facing the men, and that was the lack of dogs. Only six had survived to this point, and two of those were pregnant and couldn't work. Thus, only Joyce would use the dogs to pull his sledge. The rest of the men would result to manhauling, a hard and taxing exercise. By the way, one man, Alexander Stevens, the expedition's chief scientist, would remain at Cape Evans to take weather measurements. The teams would spend the next four months, from September through December, setting up depots three through five. By the time 1916 rolled around, the men were, frankly, exhausted. They had been working hard for months. They had not eaten well, and their nutrition was lacking, and thus there were signs of scurvy. Still, they had gotten most of their job done. There was only one final supply depot to be set up, and that was at Mount Hope, at the base of Beardmore Glacier, a trek of nearly 400 miles. Three of the men would head back to Cape Evans, while the remaining six would depart on January 1, 1916, for the final stage of their job. The team included McIntosh and Joyce, plus Ernest Wild, Victor Hayward, Arnold Spencer Smith, and Dick Richards. They also had the dogs, as Joyce had fed them well and made sure that they were not overworked. He felt that the expedition's success and their lives depended on the dogs. The six men would push on to the barrier, days turning to weeks. They would get weaker by the day, especially those who had to manhaul their sledge. On December 26th, not far from Beardmore Glacier, Arnold Spencer Smith, the reverend, would collapse the result of scurvy. The team would leave Spencer Smith in a tent and continue on to Mount Hope without him. There, they would set up their final supply depot and then head back north. They would pick up Spencer Smith on January 29th. He was physically helpless by this time and had to be placed on one of the sledges and pulled. Also, Aeneas McIntosh was in bad shape. Scurvy had swollen up his knee joints. He was in severe pain and couldn't pull anymore. He could only stagger along with the others. It got so bad, McIntosh would formally hand command over to Joyce as well as Dick Richards. The men would slog on, scurvy and malnutrition in the cold, sapping their strength every day. On February 17th, about 10 miles short of one of the depots, a blizzard struck. The men would have to spend five days in their tent, riding out the storm, all the while getting weaker. To top it off, their food was now gone, and the men were eating dog rations. The conditions of Spencer Smith and McIntosh deteriorated so badly they could not go on. Thus, Ernest Wilde would be left to tend the men, while Joyce, Richards, and Hayward would continue on to the depot. Their plan was to get food and bring it back to the others. Led by the four dogs, which were tired but still alive, the men would take a week to get to the next depot and return to the others. Once everyone had recovered a bit, they would continue their march. Both McIntosh and Spencer Smith rode on a sledge. On March 8th, Victor Haywood would collapse, and then the next day, Spencer Smith would succumb to the scurvy that had been plaguing him for months. He would be buried in the ice. The rest of the men, all exhausted and suffering from the effects of scurvy, pushed on. They would reach Hut Point on March 16th. Now, at this point, the men were able to rest and recover from their ordeal. However, they still did not know the fate of Aurora. Had the ship survived the storm that had carried her out to sea? Had she returned to the area? If they had hoped to find any answers at Hut Point, they would be disappointed. Now, ideally, the five survivors would trudge their way across the ice to Cape Evans, and they were anxious to do so. Perhaps the men there knew the fate of Aurora. However, just like the previous year, the ice on the Ross Sea was unstable, and to try to cross it to Cape Evans was far too dangerous. Thus, they would have to wait, surviving on seal meat and stores left at the camp. On May 8, 1916, McIntosh would announce that he and Victor Hayward were going to risk the still dangerous-looking ice and march to Cape Evans. Joyce and the others objected to the move, saying it was crazy, but McIntosh was insistent. Reports suggest that McIntosh was suffering due to the monotony of the situation and the isolation, and thus he was willing to make such a risky decision. The two men would set out that afternoon, and they would never be seen again. Within two hours, the area was engulfed by a blizzard. The storm was so severe, Joyce, Wilde, and Richards would not risk leaving their hut for two days. When the three finally did go and look for signs of McIntosh and Hayward, they would only find some faint tracks leading to broken ice. The two men had either fallen through the ice or had been carried out into the Ross Sea on an ice floe. Joyce, Richards, and Wilde would not set out for Cape Evans until July 15th. Once they did, they would be reunited with the four other men of the expedition. At Cape Evans, they found that there had been no sign of Aurora, and, of course, Shackleton had not shown up either. The seven men could only wait and hope that summer would bring them better news. And that takes our story back to May of the previous year, when Aurora disappeared. Well, what happened was that the ice pack that the ship was trapped in would drift out into the Ross Sea. They tried to signal for help with the wireless, but it replied to them with static. That winter, Aurora would drift north in the ice pack, On July 21, 1915, the rudder was crushed by the ice, and on several occasions, the men were sure the ship was going to be crushed as well. It got so bleak, Joseph Stenhouse, the acting captain, was a day away from ordering his men to abandon ship. They were prepared to march across the ice back to Cape Evans. But the ship would survive, trapped in the ice, which took it further and further north and out to sea. It was not until February 12, 1916 that there would be any sign of hope. And that was when the floe that held Aurora splintered, allowing the ship to float free for the first time in nearly a year. For the next 18 days, the ship would try and push its way out of the ice. However, coal was dangerously low, so Stenhouse only used his sails. Thus, they got nowhere. It wasn't until March 1st that the boilers would be fired up and a breakout attempt made. Again, nothing. But then, five days later, the men would spot the edge of the ice. For a week, they would try and maneuver and push their way out of the pack and then on March 14th, it would happen. Aurora found herself clear of the ice and in the open sea. She had drifted 1,600 miles, or 2,575 kilometers, over 312 days. Stenhouse set sail for New Zealand. However, progress was very slow. The makeshift rudder made steering difficult, and the ship was low on coal, so they used their sails as much as possible. As Aurora neared New Zealand, they were able to get out an emergency message on the wireless. On April 2nd, a tug would reach the ship and tow her into Port Chalmers the next day. Aurora had been gone for nearly a year and a half. Stenhouse could give no reports about Shackleton, but he knew that ten men were stranded in the Ross Sea area, and he needed to go back to rescue them. However, there was a problem with that. As winter was now approaching, no rescue attempt could take place for at least eight months. But more importantly, the expedition had no money, and the governments of Australia and New Zealand were in the middle of a great war, and they had little appetite to fund a rescue mission. I mean, people were sympathetic, but everyone pointed their fingers at someone else to foot the bill. Thus, Stenhouse sat in New Zealand and could do nothing. He desperately wanted to head back to Cape Evans later in the year, but he didn't have the means to refit the ship and pay for a crew. And let's face it, it had been a year and a half since anyone had heard from Shackleton. With the war going on, those were the headlines now. And speaking of Ernest Shackleton, this is a good time to take us across Antarctica and catch up with him and the Men of Endurance, as they sat on the ice of the Weddell Sea, wondering what fate awaited them. And so, we will leave Aurora waiting for someone, anyone, to help get her back to Antarctica, where seven men waited to be rescued. And with that, let us head back across the continent to Ernest Shackleton and the Men of Endurance. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust, Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey. <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It was late November 1915. The location was the ice pack of the Weddell Sea, several hundred miles east of the Antarctic Peninsula. There, 28 men and 49 dogs sat at what was called Ocean Camp, waiting. Their ship endurance was gone, chewed up and swallowed by the ice after a long fight. The men needed the ice to melt and break up, so they could make a go for the Antarctic Peninsula, where one of the islands, Paulette Island, held a cache of supplies. Plus, that would put them at a spot that was visited by whaling ships, and thus give them a chance to be rescued. Sir Ernest Shackleton knew the situation was not good, but his men were optimistic, mostly due to the calm and confident face that Shackleton wore for them. Deep down, he was terrified of being the cause of so many deaths. Now, a couple of quick comments I want to make about this part of our story just so that we are clear about things going forward. First, as we discussed last time, the Weddell Sea is a huge bay filled with ice, and the men were stuck on that ice. The ice drifts in a circular northwest direction, so the area we are heading toward is the Antarctic Peninsula. This is basically a long spear of land that sticks out into the ocean and forms the western shore of the Weddell Sea. Take a look at a map and you'll instantly understand what I'm talking about. I have put one on our site, ExplorersPodcast.com. Second comment is a bit of information about ice packs and ice flows. In the past, I've sort of used these terms interchangeably, but that's not quite right, so I want to clarify because I think it will help you understand today's episode. An ice flow is a cohesive piece of flat, free-floating ice. It can be small, say 60 feet or 18 meters wide. Or it can be huge, say 5 miles wide or 8 kilometers. The thickness of the ice can vary immensely. These ice flows often get bunched up together by winds and currents, and form, along with the freezing ocean water, an ice pack. You can also mix in icebergs, which are big chunks of freshwater ice that break off of glaciers. In the open ocean, an ice pack is often loose, with lanes of open water all around and through it, and a ship can sort of pick its ways amongst the various flows. However, as the ice flows get pushed towards a landmass, like in the Weddell Sea, they can press together. We described the ice flows coming together last time like a slow-motion crash. Two ice flows press into one another and push each other higher and higher like a tent until one crashes down on the other. These are pressure ridges, and they create ice walls and fields of broken chunks of ice. So, in the Weddell Sea, all of these ice flows get pushed up against one another and then into the actual Antarctic continent. This causes the ice to press together tighter and tighter, making a very dense ice pack. This is what Shackleton and the crew of Endurance were living on, an immensely dense pack of ice hundreds of miles wide, with flows and icebergs and ocean ice pressing together to form this slowly drifting mass. Okay, so I hope that explains the whole ice pack versus ice flow thing. So, Ocean Camp was drifting slowly to the northwest in the direction Shackleton wanted to go, but there was no guarantee where the ice would ultimately take them. There were really three options. The first option was for the pack to go northwest toward the Antarctic Peninsula. Exactly where along the peninsula was another question, but at this time, it was heading toward Paulette Island. The second option was for the pack to push north and go beyond the peninsula. This was not good. If the ice pack took the men this far north, there were only a couple of desolate islands that offered any sort of hope. Otherwise, it was just open ocean for hundreds of miles. Like I said, not what anyone wanted. The final option was a bad one, and that would be that the ice pack would not break up and the men would be stuck here for another year. No one really talked about this option because they dreaded such a thing. So, what Shackleton needed was to get his boats, he had three of them, survivors from endurance, out of the ice pack and into the open water so they could sail to Paulette Island. If you remember, he had tried to haul the boats, which weighed about a ton each, across the ice, but the wet snow and blocks of ice made progress terribly slow. In two days, they had managed just two miles, and the attempt had been abandoned. No matter, Shackleton expected that they would know their fate by January at the latest. But until then, the men simply had to wait, and be ready, and be wary. I say wary because the ice could, literally, break up under the men's feet. The thickness of the ice varied, and it could simply open and then close. No one wanted to find themselves falling into freezing water, or losing their tents and sleeping bags to the sea. So, just like when the men had lived on and around endurance, Shackleton set up routines to keep the crew occupied and engaged. They cared for the dogs, went out on hunting parties, Helped with chores such as cleaning and cooking, and scouted out the area to see if the ice was breaking up anywhere around them. And there was always a lookout on duty, watching in case the ice broke open. The men would drill regularly, preparing for the moment that they would have to put the boats in the water. Every person had a specific job, taking down tents, loading the boats, etc., etc. Outside of duties, the men tried to keep themselves entertained. Leonard Hussey's banjo was a welcome distraction, and in the tents, which housed between four and eight men each, they would read to one another. Cards were another big pastime. Shackleton's tent was known for its poker games, and Shackleton and one of the surgeons, James McElroy, taught the rest of the men how to play bridge, and soon it became all the rage in the camp. Now, one thing that did change with regards to Shackleton and the men was their appearance. While Endurance had lived, the men had routinely shaved and cut their hair. However, much of the soap and the scissors and razors had gone down with the ship, and thus the men were growing beards and their hair was getting thicker and longer. Also, each of the tents had a small stove for cooking and staying warm. Seal blubber was used to fuel the stoves, which gave off a black, greasy soot. Soon, many of the men's faces were black due to this. Some tried to keep clean, often washing in the snow, but others felt it gave their faces a coating of protection from the cold. In all of this, Shackleton kept up his easygoing, confident manner with the crew. He moved amongst them, bringing them coffee in the morning, talking to them about their homes and families and always letting them know that he would make sure that they got home. The men loved him for this, and despite losing endurance, they felt confident about the future. Their plan was sound, it was just a matter of time. Now, as November moved into December, there were some changes that caused some concern in the camp. In November, the weather had been warm, and the winds had pushed the camp steadily to the northwest. That's what everyone wanted. However, as things moved into December, the wind suddenly turned cold, This meant the ice stayed tightly packed together instead of breaking apart, and even when the winds were favorable, the drift of the pack lessened considerably. Everyone was concerned that things weren't changing. That would mean another year on the ice, not something anybody wanted. All of this made the men weary and impatient. They had been trapped in the ice for nearly a year, and the stagnant situation simply put the men on edge. It was inevitable that arguments and conflicts would become more common. To alleviate some of the grumbling, Shackleton tried to keep the men he saw as malcontents from banding together or from influencing others. An example of this was Harry McNish, the expedition's carpenter and main curmudgeon. He was assigned to the same tent as Frank Wilde, who was supremely loyal to Shackleton and wouldn't put up with McNish's complaints. Another thing was to play to a man's ego. Shackleton often consulted specific men about this problem or that issue to give them a sense that he valued their opinion. He was really good at this kind of thing, making people feel valued, all the while keeping a close eye on those who may cause problems. I also want to add that Shackleton had men like Frank Wilde ready to lay the hammer down if needed. The boss wasn't a fan of being heavy-handed, so he made sure that he had aides who would be willing to do it for him. Still, despite all the efforts, the men were getting antsy and showing signs of fraying. Thus, on December 19th, Shackleton decided it was time for action. He was going to try and strike out with the boats to get closer to the edge of the ice pack. Shackleton felt that Ocean Camp was just too gripped by the ice, and it might never actually open up this year. Thus, the decision to move. The plan went as follows. Christmas would be celebrated early on December 22nd, and the next day, Shackleton and some others would scout out to the west to find a path that they could follow with the boats and sledges while the camp was packed up by the men. As a note, at this point, Shackleton knew that they were about 200 miles, or 3,200 kilometers, west of the Antarctic Peninsula. And the edge of the ice pack was probably about 150 to 180 miles away, or 240 to 290 kilometers. The goal was to try and push the boats and sledges two, three, four miles each day and get closer to the ice pack's edge and to a place more likely to break open than their current camp. Well, some of the men embraced this move. To many, they just wanted to do something. They were tired of sitting around. Others were skeptical. The last time they had tried to haul the boats, it had been an awful experience. And what if they managed to go 20 or 30 or 40 miles? How does that help if they're still 120 or 140 miles away from the edge of the ice pack? And we can't forget, if they moved the camp, they would have to leave a lot of stuff, including one of the boats, plus food and supplies. It was a risky move, and what was the payoff? Well, that argument was moot as Shackleton had made the decision to move on. Thus, they would celebrate Christmas early on December 22nd, the men feasting on ham, parsnips, baked beans, biscuits, cocoa, and peaches. In fact, the men were allowed to eat as much as they wanted, since they were going to have to leave some of the food behind. The move began the next day, with the dog teams blazing a trail. However, the conditions for traveling in the snow were just as bad as in October, maybe worse. The warm weather made the boats and men and sledges sink into the snow, sometimes knee deep. And of course, there were the walls of ice, the pressure ridges created by the colliding flows. The men would have to, at times, cut their way through them if they could not go around. The trek would consist of seven sledges pulled by dogs, plus seventeen men pulling two of the boats. The next few days were best described as wet. Everything got soaked. Clothing, mittens, socks, everything. Even their boots. This would happen when open water froze in the night. Well, the next morning, the ice would look deceptively solid, and the men would start to cross it and splash. The water was usually no more than a foot or two deep, but it was enough to thoroughly soak a man's boots. By the way, a water-soaked boot weighed seven pounds. Try walking with a pair of those on in knee-deep snow. We'll just call it difficult. Another issue was sleeping at night. The men had left their water-protective floor coverings behind, so the tents and sleeping bags got soaked in the night. Thus, the march west was a wet, dismal slog, and the men were not making more than a few miles a day. On December 27th, Harry McNish, the discontented carpenter, announced that he had had enough. He refused to keep hauling the boats. It was madness to do such a thing. He argued that with the ship gone, he was no longer bound by the articles he had agreed to when he had signed on with the expedition. This was, to be honest, not true. Shackleton had a copy of the articles, and they clearly stated that the men would abide by said articles at sea and on shore. Shackleton would even bring the men together and read them the articles to squash any rebellious ideas. And from there, any grumblings faded away. However, there are some rumors that McNish was taken aside and told to get things in order. If he wouldn't do that, well, he would be shot. Now, if that's true, I don't know, but it's possible. It was mutiny McNish was spouting, and Shackleton could not afford such a thing to spread to the other men. And it might not have been a get-in-line-or-we'll-shoot-you sort of threat. It might have been more of a fine, quit, but if you don't help out and obey orders, we'll leave you behind. And if you try to take anything from camp, we'll shoot you. It's not like McNish had anywhere else to go. No matter, the main thing Shackleton needed to do was keep the discontent from spreading. Thus, the threat to McNish was certainly a real possibility. Tom Crean or Frank Wilde were both capable of going through with such a threat. However, the actions of McNish greatly upset Shackleton. He gave his men a lot of rope with regards to their behavior. He favored a hands-off approach to problems, and liked to take care of issues in a quiet, private manner. Thus, when a public revolt erupted, it was, in Shackleton's mind, a grievous betrayal. That night, when writing in his diary, he would say, quote, Everyone working well except the carpenter. I shall never forget him in this time of strain and stress, End quote. And Shackleton would never forgive McNish, never. Now, I do want to point out that McNish really did have a point. After five days, the men had gone just 10 miles, or 16 kilometers. They were exhausted and the food was running low. To top it off, Shackleton climbed an iceberg and saw that it was nothing but an impassable jumble of broken pressure ridges. There was no way they could get through it. Shackleton was forced to admit defeat, something he hated to do. But he knew that the best thing that he could do at this point was to find a stable ice floe to set up camp. Now, finding a floe wasn't simple, and the route to Ocean Camp was unstable, so they couldn't go back. Eventually, they would find an ice floe and set up camp. But this was not a good time for Shackleton or the crew. The men were tired, and they were wet and miserable. Their camp was nothing but mushy, rotting ice, and the failure of the last trek had left Shackleton open to doubts and second guessing. To be honest, it had been a big risk, and the chances of success had seemed small. Shackleton probably should not have done it. He had allowed his impatience to overcome his better judgment. On New Year's Eve, Shackleton would write in his diary, quote, the last day of the old year, may the new one bring us good fortune, a safe deliverance from this anxious time, and all good things to those we love so far away, End quote. And so, as the men of endurance moved into 1917, there was a general pale over the camp, as their ordeal was showing no sign of ending. There was about 50 days of food remaining, which loomed as a potential issue. The quartermaster, or Lee's encouraged Shackleton to sort more meat while game was plentiful. But Shackleton rejected the idea, saying that he didn't want to give the impression that the stay on the ice was a long-term thing. That would ding the men's already sagging morale. As a note, Shackleton's health was not the best at this time either. He sometimes struggled to get moving. While some of this was physical, he refused to let the doctors listen to his heart. A lot was mental. He had trouble sleeping and suffered from nightmares and anxiety. He was haunted by the thought of losing his men. It was a difficult time, but he would pull himself up each day and face the challenges ahead of him. By the way, around this time, Ord Lees would have a close encounter of a deadly nature. While out with a hunting party on his skis, a huge animal would burst out of the ice and come after him. It was a sea leopard, also called a leopard seal. These things can be huge, over a thousand pounds or 450 kilograms, and their only natural predator is the killer whale. Ord Lees would flee, shouting out to his companions for help. As Ord Lees fled across the ice, the sea leopard would track Ord Lees' shadow from under the ice, just like it would a penguin or smaller seal, and burst out of the ice in front of him. Before the sea leopard could attack, Frank Wilde would shoot and kill the animal, which was 12 feet long and weighed 1,100 pounds, or 3.5 meters and 500 kilograms. The first couple of weeks of 1917 were filled with wet snow and rain. The men could only sit in their tents and play cards. Morale crept lower each day. The biggest problem was that there were no strong winds to push the ice pack to the north. On January 14th, Shackleton would move the camp to a more stable flow. This camp would be called Patience Camp. And soon after that move, Shackleton made a deeply unpopular decision. He ordered the shooting of four of the seven dog teams. The dogs were just not needed, and they required a lot of food to sustain them. Some of the men were furious at the decision, as they were deeply attached to the animals. Many blamed Shackleton— for not having stocked up enough meat when they'd had the chance. Frank Wilde would take the animals away, one by one, and do the killings. Two of the dog teams were then sent back to Ocean Camp to see if they could retrieve any supplies. They would find the camp underwater, but they managed to salvage 500 pounds, or 225 kilograms, of food. When the two teams returned to Patience Camp, those dogs would be shot as well. One team of dogs was spared, just in case they were needed in the future. The killing of the dogs left everyone in a dour mood. Frank Wilde wrote, I have known many men I would rather shoot than the rest of the dogs. But shortly thereafter, there would be positive signs when the wind picked up. For five days, there were gale force winds, some more than 70 miles per hour or 110 kilometers per hour. But the men happily endured the winds and rains and wet snow because they were being pushed north upwards of 10 to 12 miles a day or 16 to 19 kilometers. The storm gave the men hope, and when it was done, there appeared, according to Harry McNish, quote, a proper sea fog, end quote. It was a sign they were closer to the open ocean. Also, in an interesting twist, the team's previous home, Ocean Camp, was blown to within five miles of Patience Camp. And next there was nothing. The winds would die down, and the ice was as tightly packed as ever. There were no cracks or openings in sight. Hope began to fade again. On January 26th, Shackleton would write in his diary three words, quote, Waiting, waiting, waiting. End quote. A few days later, he sent some of the men back to Ocean Camp to get anything of value. They got some food, but the men were mostly excited about a large stash of tobacco plus some books. Everyone was tired of what they had been reading, and the additional books were a welcome change. Also, another group of men was sent to bring the Stancomb Wills to Patience Camp. This would give Shackleton all three of Endurance's lifeboats. Now, health-wise, the men were beginning to struggle. Fresh meat was getting harder and harder to find, and they were pretty much eating anything that they had, including the dog food, which was a pemmican-based product. The diet was lacking in nutrients, and it led to constipation and fatigue. In early February, they went two weeks without sighting a single seal. Seals were important for not just eating, but for their blubber, which was used to fuel the camp stoves. Now, just as things were looking bleak, the men would get a major break. Between February 17th and February 24th, thousands of Adelie penguins would appear. Camp Patience was right in their migration path north. While the Adelie penguins were not big or meeting and had little blubber, the men were able to kill more than 600 of them in a week, replenishing their much-needed stores of fresh meat. By the way, by this time, the expedition was nearly out of flour and tea and the cocoa was completely gone. So, as February came to close, the team would get some bad news. It was determined that Paulette Island was 90 miles away, or 145 kilometers. Since the big storm in late January, the camp had drifted only about two miles a day, or three kilometers. However, the drift had taken them more northerly than desired, and the ice pack was likely to sail past the Antarctic Peninsula without breaking up. Lionel Greenstreet, the first officer of endurance, said of the news, quote, My opinion is that the chance of getting to Paulette Island now are about 1 in 10, Still, the men could do nothing but wait. It was a difficult situation at Patience camp. Everyone was getting on each other's nerves at an increasing rate. There were minor, and not-so-minor, squabbles and arguments. Bad weather kept the men in the tents, which didn't help the situation. And then something would happen that would energize the crew. I'll read to you from Alfred Lansing's book, Endurance. Quote, On March 9th, they felt the swell, the undeniable, unmistakable rise and fall of the ocean. There was no wishful thinking this time. It was there for all to see and feel and hear. End quote. Everyone was excited. Under them, the ice pack rose and fell, ever so slightly. They could even hear the ice creaking and groaning. This wouldn't happen unless the ice was close to the open sea. The timing of the rise and fall of the ice was used to determine that the edge of the ice pack was about 30 miles away. The men were thrilled at the news. This was the closest they had been to open water in over a year. Hope had returned. Now, the arrival of the swelling was good news, and signaled progress, but it was also a sign of danger. Cracks in the ice could appear at any moment, and thus Shackleton set up a constant watch on the ice floe to raise the alarm once any such event occurred. Meanwhile, the men readied the camp and boats, just in case. The next day, there was little change, which disappointed everyone. Still, Shackleton wanted his men ready. He drilled them, seeing how fast they could break down the camp and get the boats to water. They had to be ready for that moment. As a note, by this time, food was running dangerously low. There had been no seals for three weeks, and the blubber would be exhausted by the end of the month. On March 16th, the last of the flour was used, and rations were cut. At the same time, the temperature was dropping. The combination, colder temperatures and less food, made it difficult to stay warm. The human body needs calories to generate heat, and thus everyone was hungry and cold and despondent. It set the men on edge. Reginald James, one of the expedition scientists, Wrote this in his diary quote, Nothing to do, see, or say. We find ourselves getting more taciturn daily. End quote. On March twenty third, Shackleton woke early and walked to the edge of the ice floe that was Patience's camp. When the fog lifted, he thought he saw a black object in the distance. What was it that he had seen? He rushed to his tent and got Frank Hurley, the photographer, and the two men stared out into the fog, waiting for things to clear. And then they both saw it land. Land in sight, land in sight. Shackleton shouted the words as he ran from tent to tent. Most of the men were bleary-eyed and stumbled out of their tents to see what all the fuss was about. Some just stayed in their sleeping bags. Most expected to be disappointed. But there it was, land. It was determined that this was one of the Danger Islands. It was 42 miles away, or 67 kilometers. The Danger Islands are a group of small islands about 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, east of Paulette Island. Later that day, as the fog lifted, they could see beyond the danger islands to the mountains on Joinville Island, which was at the very tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. They were 57 miles, or 92 kilometers, due west of Joinville Island, which was just north of Paulette Island, Shackleton's preferred destination. Frank Hurley would say, quote, If the ice opens, we could land in a day, End quote. But Shackleton could see that that wasn't going to happen, not yet. The ice pack was still too solid. He counted 70 icebergs around the pack, which helped prevent it from breaking up, as well as from moving. By the way, the ice pack was, around Camp Patience, a lot of broken bits of ice floes. It was wildly unstable. There was no way they could sledge or walk across it. And they couldn't put the boats in the water, as they would be crushed by the larger pieces of ice. They needed some open water for that to happen. Thus, the men were helpless, for now. Still, it was a welcome turn of events, as it was the first land they had seen in more than a year. Again, they could only go back to waiting and preparing for the moment that the ice did give them a chance to escape. All this, however, was troubling to Shackleton. The ice pack was due east of the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, but it was drifting slowly north. If this trend continued, landing on the peninsula was unlikely, as the pack was taking them out to sea. It would leave Antarctica to the south of them. If that happened, their only chance was a pair of small islands, 120 miles to the north or 195 kilometers called Clarence and Elephant Islands. Beyond those islands were their death. That night, Shackleton would write, quote, Please God, we will soon get ashore, End quote. The next day, there was a sudden violent gale from the southwest, pushing the pack further north, past Pollitt and Joinville Island and the Antarctic Peninsula. That left the islands to the north as their best chance of survival. The fierce winds also brought bitter cold, plus food was almost gone. Dog pemmican and a few lumps of sugar was breakfast. Lunch was some biscuits and sugar. To conserve blubber, the only hot meal was dinner, which usually consisted of hoosh, which was a stew of pemmican or penguin meat, mixed with ground biscuits or whatever else was available. There were suggestions to go back to Ocean Camp, where there was a large store of dog pemmican, but Shackleton deemed that far too risky because of the rotting ice. These were tense days for the men of endurance. Cracks in the ice would open, then close just as quickly, keeping everyone on edge. And it began to rain, constantly, making everyone miserable. The men were filthy and wet; they all had shaggy hair and scraggly beards, and their faces were covered in black soot march twenty seventh would bring one bright spot, and that was when a seal was killed and Then the next day, early in the morning, Alfred Cheatham, endurance's third officer, would let out a shout saying, quote, "Crack, crack, lash up, and stow end quote. Two cracks, one running the length of the ice floe, had appeared while the swelling of the ice pack increased, one cracker as wide as twenty feet or six meters. The men scrambled to save everything and be ready in case the boats had to be put in the water. And then, about an hour after the initial breaks, another crack appeared directly under one of the boats. The men scrambled to pull the boat back onto the ice. After that, things settled, but everyone was on edge as the ice rose and fell all day long, and the threats of another crack hung over the camp. On the positive side, Frank Wilde would shoot a thousand pound sea lion, giving the team some much needed fresh meat. They were so desperate for food, the men went through the stomach of the sea lion and took out the half-digested fish so they could eat it themselves. Now, with the ice pack in danger of breaking apart at any time, Shackleton would make another difficult decision, and that was with regards to the last team of dogs. This was a crushing moment for many of the men. This final dog team consisted of puppies that had been born early in the expedition and had been formed into their own team. They were now over a year old. These dogs held a special bond with the crew, as the men had watched them grow up, played with them, nursed them, and so forth. Many of these puppies had been raised by Tom Crean. And if you want to break your heart, go look at the photo on our website, explorerspodcast.com, and you'll see Crean holding a litter of puppies. These were the ones that would have to be put down at this time. By the way, the photo is so famous, when a statue of Crean was erected in Ireland in 2003, it would depict him holding a pair of his pups. Anyhow, Frank Wilde would, again, put down the animals. This time the dogs were skinned and gutted for food. And while that was not something anyone was happy about, the men were ecstatic at getting fresh red meat for the first time in more than a year. Okay, that is it for dying animals. With the ice now wildly unstable, Shackleton put his men on constant alert. Half the team would be up and ready to go for a four-hour time span. Then the other half of the men would take over for their four-hour shift. And so everyone waited and waited. Again, the ice just wouldn't break up. Sometimes a crack would open in fact one night a crack opened just 2 feet away from one of the tents but for the most part the ice pack clung together the ice floe that patience camp was on was by this time a mere 600 feet wide or 180 meters it had once been 10 times that on april 3rd, a sea line was shot allowing rations to be increased staving off food issues for a bit also the ice pack was moving quickly although the constant rain and mist and clouds made taking an accurate sighting difficult Then, two days later, Frank Worsley managed a reading and found the flow had veered west, not north, and had covered 21 miles in just 48 hours. The next morning, as the fog lifted and the sun made an appearance, the men saw a large iceberg. Wait, no, not an iceberg, land. It was Clarence Island, and it was about 50 miles or 80 kilometers away. Soon, they would sight Elephant Island as well, which was about 20 miles or 32 kilometers directly east of Clarence Island. Both islands were mountainous, with the men counting 10 peaks alone on Elephant Island, one as high as 5,600 feet or 1,700 meters. Shackleton and the men were desperate. Their ice flow was shrinking by the day, but the ice wasn't opening enough to launch the boats. Also, there was an issue with the drift of the ice pack. Clarence Island was directly in front of the pack, but the camp was drifting east and was in danger of missing the islands entirely. No matter, Shackleton and his men could only wait and be ready. And then, on April 9, 1917, it would finally happen. The winds shifted from the west to the southeast, and the ice floes that made up the pack began to pull apart. The men could see water lanes open and close all around them. By 10.30 that morning, the swells of the ice grew more pronounced, and lanes and pools of water opened and spread throughout the pack. The order went out. Strike the tents and clear the boats, shouted Shackleton. The men scrambled to break camp and prep the boats. As they did so, patients' camp would crack in two, crack exactly where Shackleton's tent had been minutes before. At 12.30 p.m., the ice pack opened. The men all looked to Shackleton. If they departed now, they didn't know how long the lanes would stay open, and there was a chance they could not find any staple flow should they get trapped in the pack again. Ten minutes later, Shackleton would give the order the crew had been waiting to hear for nearly six months. In a quiet, hoarse voice, the boss said, quote, launch the boats, end quote. In less than an hour, the three boats were in the water, every oar out, the men pulling with all their strength. They were clumsy at first, as they hadn't rowed in ages, but they were soon working together as a team. The three boats, by the way, were named after three of the expedition's most prominent supporters, James Caird, Dudley Docker, and Janet Stancombe Wills. I will refer to the three as the James Caird, the Docker, and the Stancombe Wills. Shackleton took command of the James Carrod and stood at the tiller as they pushed northwest through the ice pack. You can just hear the commands, stroke, 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 the ice growing looser with each boat length. Within an hour, the boats were over a mile from Patience Camp and into a large open area of water, although not out of the ice pack. It was then that Shackleton would see a ripple of water, like a small wave churning upward, coming toward the boats. This was a phenomenon called a tide rip, in which a stretch of turbulent water is created when a powerful current flows into or across another strong current. Alfred Lansing, in his book Endurance, would write this description, quote, Looking to starboard, they saw a lava-like flow of churning, tumbling ice at least two feet high and as wide as a small river bearing down on them out of the sea, End quote. Shackleton quickly ordered the James Card to turn to port and shouted for the other boats to do likewise. In doing so, they avoided the main path of the tide rip, which flattened out and disappeared after about 15 minutes. It was a crazy moment. The men finally had reached a stretch of open water, and suddenly a two to three foot tall wave of churning ice, which could easily have swamped any of the boats, suddenly came bearing down on them. It demonstrates the wild dangers the ocean had waiting for the men. Now, I want to take a moment and talk about the three boats. Two of the boats, the Docker and the Stancombe Wills, were cutters, nearly 22 foot long, with square sterns and made of solid oak. They were called bottlenose killer boats by the Norwegians, who used them to hunt bottlenose whales. They were primarily designed for rowing, although they did have a sail. The third boat, the James Carrad, was a 22.5 foot long double-ended whaleboat made of pine planking, American elm, and English oak. It was lighter than the other boats, and had been designed by Frank Worsley. It was, without question, the most seaworthy of the three. None of the boats were, thankfully, overpacked. As a note, Shackleton had almost not retrieved the Stancombe wills, which would have forced the 28 men and all their supplies into just two boats. That would have been immensely crowded and dangerous. The three boats would make good progress that day, seven miles. They ran into areas of ice, but nothing thick enough to block them. The men, while tired, were enormously gratified to be doing something after so many months of inactivity. Late in the afternoon, a sturdy ice floe was found, and Shackleton decided to set up camp and spend the night on the ice. Trying to sail in the darkness was too dangerous, plus the men needed sleep. That night, almost immediately after the tired men went to their tents, the watch called out a warning. The ice had cracked. In the process, one of the tents collapsed, and there was a splash. One of the men, Ernie Holness, a young engine stoker, plunged into the sea, still in his sleeping bag. Shackleton reached in, snagged the man, and pulled him out. Moments later, the ice closed up. Holness was, of course, completely soaked, but he was alive. The ice would continue its games, opening up again and splitting the team in two. A rope was tossed across the crack in the ice, and the men pulled the two pieces together so that all the men and gear and boats could be put onto the more stable of the two pieces of ice. However, as they were finishing the job, the currents pulled the ice apart, leaving a single man stuck on the other side of the crack. That man was Shackleton. The men watched as he drifted off into the dark of the night. A boat would have to be launched to go and retrieve the boss. I really wanted to recount this moment because I have, for two episodes, been talking about how dangerous the ice can be. And right here, the exact thing everyone feared happened. The ice had opened up right under a sleeping man who had gone into the ocean. By the way, the man who had went into the drink, Ernie Holness, had to be walked around all night by the men so he wouldn't freeze, as there were no dry clothes for him to change into. Holness was not as annoyed about being dumped in the frozen water as he was about losing a stash of tobacco. Anyhow, after this incident, there would be no sleep for the men. They basically sat around and waited for dawn or the ice to break again. The next day, April 10th, the men were greeted by a hazy, cold morning. Ice had gathered around the floe, trapping them yet again. They would have to wait a couple of hours before the pack loosened and the boats could be launched. The three boats would row for two hours before coming to some open water. Shackleton ordered the sails unfurled, and it became clear that the James Caird was the most nimble and swift of the three boats. And then Shackleton and the crew came to a mass of old ice floe. They would follow its edge for a while until they found a passage through it. The time was about 11 a.m. And as the boats sailed out of the floe, all they could see before them was open water. They were free of the ice pack that had held them prisoner for 15 months. Now, you would think that this was a moment to celebrate, but as they emerged out of the pack and into the open sea, the men were hit by the forces of Mother Nature. The ice pack had often protected the crew from the worst of the weather, including wind and waves. Now they had nothing to shelter them. Although it was foggy, Shackleton figured the boats were about 25 miles from land, and he set out in a northeasterly direction. The men were miserable, but they didn't complain. This is what they had wanted, and it meant there was progress. Now, despite being beyond the ice pack, progress toward land was almost impossible as the winds and currents shifted constantly. Not wanting to get caught in the open sea and in a storm, Shackleton decided to head back to the ice pack, which would offer some protection from the elements. Shackleton selected a large mass of ice described as a floeberg, an iceberg clumped together with more ice. The floeberg, which was floating alone near the ice pack, was that deep, dark blue color you see in photos. Upon examination, Shackleton could see that it was an old berg, rotting away at its base. Shackleton ordered the men onto the floeberg, although he was terrified the thing would capsize. But his men, who hadn't slept in thirty six hours, needed to get some rest, thus they had to risk it. To get on the floeberg, the men had to climb a five foot high wall of ice. Then all the supplies and gear had to be passed on to the surface. And then the men had to, literally, lift the one-ton boat straight up out of the water and onto the Floberg. It was exhausting, back-breaking business, not to mention dangerous. One man fell in the water during the operation, but he was quickly rescued. On the Floberg, the men could finally rest. The sea had been an ordeal. Their hands were blistered from rowing and stung due to the salty seawater. And everyone and everything was soaked, including the sleeping bags, but that didn't stop the men from sleeping, even as a fierce gale whipped up around them. The next morning, the men would wake to find ice surrounding the camp. In the night, the floeberg had drifted too and been engulfed by the nearby ice pack, and thus they were now trapped in the pack again. And to make matters worse, Shackleton's fears about the floeberg were proving to be true, as the big mass of ice was crumbling under their feet. Sections some 20 feet wide, or 6 meters, were just breaking off at the edge of the floeberg and crashing into the sea. The whole thing could capsize or break apart at any moment. Shackleton doubted the Floberg would survive the night. The problem was that there was no open water to launch the boats. Again, they had to just sit and wait. Or should I say stand and wait, because Shackleton had the men standing, ready to move at a moment's notice. They even ate lunch standing up. And then at 2 p.m., the water opened when a sudden current pulled apart the ice. In moments, the boats were launched. Although they were still stuck within the pack, the three boats quickly found open lanes of water. Shackleton and Frank Worsley assessed the situation. Up until now, the destination had been Clarence or Elephant Island, but things had changed. The winds had been blowing strongly to the west the past few days, and the flow that they had spent the night on had pushed them in that direction. Clarence Island was calculated to be 39 miles, or 63 kilometers, directly north, but that meant traveling into the prevailing winds. That seemed impossible, especially for the docker in the Stancombe Wills this opened up another opportunity and that was king george island which was about 80 miles or 130 kilometers to the southwest of their current position shackleton decided to follow the winds that meant king george island elephant and clarence islands were closer but to the north and not with the winds king george island was part of a chain of islands frequently visited by whalers if the crew could get there their chances of being rescued were greatly enhanced However, if the winds changed at all, they could be pushed north and into Drake's Passage. That was a losing proposition. But with the winds blowing west, at least at this time, Shackleton decided to make a go for it. Now, I do want to stop here and make a comment about the weather and the ever-changing directions and destinations of Shackleton. It's probably a bit confusing, and that's okay, because it brings us back to our discussion about the weather of polar regions. As I said, it is wildly unpredictable and not just year to year or even month to month, but day to day and hour to hour. We get gale-force winds pushing the men west, and then north, and then east. It changes rapidly, and Shackleton had to change with it. What he really needed was for his three boats to get an extended period where the winds and currents simply held in one direction long enough to carry the boats to land. That just wasn't happening, forcing Shackleton to keep shifting his destination. He had to take what nature was giving him. In the end, you're welcome to look up all these places on a map, but know that it is a deadly game that Shackleton is being forced to play. But it will, eventually, have an ending. Anyhow, Shackleton would have the men set a southwesterly course, and the boats would push on, primarily using oars, as Shackleton didn't want them being carried into the ice by a sudden wind. As darkness approached, they would anchor alongside a floe to get a little rest and some food. The only man to disembark was Charles Green, the cook who made the men a hot meal. There would be no camping that night, as Shackleton didn't want to get trapped again. After eating, the men would continue rowing. The biggest danger to the boats faced that night were all the whales in the area. One bad encounter could shatter any of the boats. The next morning, the three boats enjoyed some open waters. They stayed along the edge of the floe, protected from the harsher weather outside the pack. And then that morning, the weather would clear enough for Frank Worsley to make an accurate calculation. The results were dismaying. The boats were now 124 miles, or 200 kilometers, east of King George Island, and more than 60 miles, or 95 kilometers, southeast of Clarence Island. They were now 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, east of where they had started the day before, despite sailing west. Heck, they were 22 miles, or 35 kilometers, further from land than when they had launched their boats from Patience Camp three days earlier. The men were incredulous at the news. They insisted Warsley they had aired but another sighting confirmed the location. What had happened was that the boats had been caught in an unknown, powerful easterly current. It was so strong, it had pulled the boats far to the east, even as they had been riding the winds in the opposite direction. Again, it is the crazy reality of the region's weather and ocean currents. This meant another change in plans. This time, Shackleton took aim for the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula to the southwest. But then the weather grew worse, and Shackleton became concerned about hitting floating ice. Plus, the men needed a rest. Thus, he elected to anchor the boats alongside a small ice floe for the night. They found a floe and tied one boat to it and attached the other boats to that boat. Canvas tarps were pulled up over each vessel to offer the men a little protection from the elements. The crew was hoping for some sleep, but Mother Nature would again decide to throw them some fun. The wind suddenly whipped up, snow began to fall, and the temperature plummeted. The boats were not safe against the ice floe. Orders were called out to the oars. It would be another night at sea. Below freezing temperatures, snow, no sleep, no food, Shackleton was concerned they would not survive the night. But the men would persevere until morning. Alfred Lansing, in his book Endurance, described the crew that morning, But dawn did come, at last, and in its light the strain of the long dark hours showed on every face. Cheeks were drained and white. Eyes were bloodshot from the salt spray and the fact that the men had slept once in the past four days. Matted beards had caught the snow and frozen into a mass of white. Shackleton searched their faces for an answer to the question that troubled him most. How much more could they take? End quote. Shackleton brought the three boats together and called a conference. When the discussion was done, there was a new destination, Elephant Island, about a 100 miles or 160 kilometers to the northwest. That was the direction the winds were offering at this time. What Shackleton needed was the weather to hold. The constantly shifting winds and currents had wreaked havoc on every plan to date. And so, toward Elephant Island, the boats went. The loose ice proved to be a big danger. The James Carrot had a hole torn into it, but thankfully, the hole was above the waterline. On each boat, the men fired up their stoves to make a little hot milk, the only thing left to drink. They were allowed to eat as much as they wanted, but by this time, they had little appetite. Their diet, plus the choppy waters, was upsetting the men's gastrointestinal systems, Most had diarrhea, which made life on the boats really uncomfortable. By noon that day, the ice would open, and after a length through some slushy ice, Shackleton and his flotilla would emerge into the open sea. They were free of the ice pack again. Now, this meant heavy winds and big rolling waves, but the winds were favorable, driving the men toward Elephant Island. Soon they would leave the ice pack in their wake. There was no turning back now. The open ocean was, without a doubt, a challenge for each of the boats and the crew. This was not something any of them had ever managed in their lives. The boats were at the mercy of the waves and the winds and the currents. At times, the boats would lose sight of one another, but thankfully, they would always come back together. As night fell, Shackleton ordered the boats to be lashed together, and a sea anchor made to keep them as stationary as possible. He had no intention of trying to sail the boats in the dark. That night would be the worst they had experienced to date. They were soaked and freezing, the winds were terrible, and the swell of the ocean made them seasick. The water, at times, got knee-deep. The weary men were suffering from frostbite and dehydration, and had saltwater boils. Miserable is the best word to describe the situation. But the morning would bring something to rejoice. The men could see both Clarence and Elephant Island, the latter only 30 miles away, or 48 kilometers. Food was issued, but the men's thirst was so bad, most of them couldn't even eat. Shackleton then issued frozen seal meat to the men and told them to chew on it, As it thawed, the men would suck out the juices, and it helped immensely. Next, the sails were raised and oars readied. It was onward to Elephant Island. By early afternoon, the boats had covered half the distance to the island, thanks to the favorable winds. Then, around 3 p.m., the winds shifted, forcing Shackleton to strike the sails. They were still 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, from land. The winds that afternoon seemed to play with the men of endurance. One moment they were good, the next they weren't, and the sky steadily grew dark and stormy. The winds were, at times, ferocious, reaching 50 miles per hour, or 80 kilometers per hour. At 5.30 p.m., the three boats were still 10 miles away from land, and the stormy conditions made visibility difficult. The men were now succumbing to exhaustion. Harry McNish literally fell to sleep at the tiller in the middle of a raging storm. Frank Wilde, who had been at the helm of one of the boats for 24 hours straight, found that he could not unfurl his fingers, as they had been locked in place for so long. As darkness fell, it became impossible for the three boats to see one another. Sometime around midnight, the Dudley Docker would get separated from the other boats. On the docker, Frank Worsley and Frank Wilde would keep things together, although some of the men were breaking. Thomas Ord Lees crawled to the front of the boat and refused to move. He only did once water gathered around him and he started bailing. In addition to the darkness, the boats now faced great waves and uncontrollable tides. The men could only fight to stay alive, and pray that the winds took them to their destination. On April 15th, when the sun rose, the men would be greeted by an amazing sight. Elephant Island was before them, just a single mile away. They were astonished. Now, the docker had been separated from the others that night. Thus, the Stancombe Wills and the James Caird would move along the coast and look for a landing spot. What they saw was dismaying. Everywhere they looked, it was rocks and cliffs. They would sail for miles, and then they would see it, a small patch of beach. As the two boats were making their way toward the beach, they would cheer the arrival of the docker under Frank Worsley. The docker had sailed along the coast of Elephant Island for hours and hours, but just like the other two boats, the lack of a beach had driven them to this location. The job done by Frank Worsley to get them there had been amazing. Now the three boats had to get ashore. They would fight the waves and the tides and the rocks, but eventually they would land at a place called Cape Valentine. Shackleton let Pierce Black Barrow, the stowaway, and the youngest of the crew go ashore first. The young man took a few steps on Elephant Island and promptly collapsed in the surf, exhausted. He would later write, Sir E.S., meaning Ernest Shackleton, gave me the great honor of being the first man to land. And with that, the men of endurance were back on land for the first time in 497 days. Some staggered onto the beach and collapsed, not moving. Others knelt in the surf, picked up pebbles, and laughed hysterically. Others wept. Many had given up hope of ever reaching land again, but here they were. Yes, it wasn't much, but it was land. The little stretch of beach was only a hundred feet wide, or thirty meters, and half as deep, but it was land. The boats would be pulled ashore and stores and provisions brought to a safe spot. During all of this, one of the men, Louis Rickinson, Endurance's thirty two year old chief engineer, would suffer a mild heart attack, but it was not life threatening. Also, several of the men were hobbled by frostbite. When the boats and the provisions and the men were all ashore and safe, Shackleton called everyone together and in a hoarse voice, barely above a whisper, Thanked them all for what they had done. He was justifiably proud of them, and he told them that. And now that the men were on land, they could rest, but there was still a lot to do. The beach they were on was backed by a cliff, 800 feet high, or 245 meters, and inland the elevation rose higher, up to 2,500 feet, or 760 meters, before leveling off. There was no way to go inland from the beach. On the plus side, seals could be seen nearby, and Shackleton ordered men out to bring in fresh meat but the most important thing at this time, after some hot food, was sleep. Blessed sleep. Shackleton would let the men sleep late the next day, and they would wake up refreshed, but to some disconcerting news. Upon examining their little camp, it was noted that the marks on the cliffs indicated that the beach was swallowed by the high tide. They could not stay here without the danger of the ocean completely covering it. This meant that they would have to head back to the boats. As the men made ready for another sea voyage, Shackleton sent Frank Wilde and five men in the Stancombe Wills, To find a better location for a camp. Wilde would return later that night, he and his men exhausted. They had spent nine hours searching and had found only a single alternative location, a spot seven miles away, which measured only 450 feet wide by 90 deep, or 135 by 25 meters. A penguin rookery was nearby, which gave them a source of food, as well as a glacier, which would give them drinking water. The move to the new location was made without incident, and everyone was able to breathe a sigh of relief. They were on land. There was food and water and shelter, the latter thanks to two of the boats, which were turned over and converted into makeshift huts. However, there was an enormous cloud hanging over Shackleton and the men, and that's because there was a very real chance that no one would ever find them on Elephant Island. Shackleton wasn't even sure anyone had ever landed on the island before, and it was not a place visited by whaling ships. And thus, the boss would make an announcement to the men. He and five others would take the James Caird, the most seaworthy of the boats, and sail to civilization. The question was, where? The nearest place was Cape Horn, the tip of South America. They were about 500 miles, or 800 kilometers, from there. The next closest location was the Falkland Islands, about 620 miles, or 1,000 kilometers, directly north. And the final option was South Georgia Island, to the northeast about 800 miles, or nearly 1,300 kilometers. That was where their voyage had begun so long ago. Shackleton would select South Georgia Island, despite it being the furthest away. The reason was the currents, which pushed northeast. If things went well, the ocean currents and winds would carry the James Caird directly towards South Georgia Island, at least in theory. To go elsewhere meant fighting nature, not something they wanted to try in a small boat. The big danger, aside from crossing some of the most treacherous waters in the world, was if the boat missed South Georgia Island. If you didn't nail your bearings and sail past the island, you'd be pushed onward towards Africa. That was 3,000 miles of open water, nothing in between. Thus, there could be no margin for error. So, with the decision made, Shackleton would pick his crew and get his men working on preparing the James Card for her voyage. The first person selected was Frank Worsley. The captain had proven to be an outstanding navigator and was essential if they were going to actually stay on course. The second team member was Tom Crean. He was Shackleton's rock, the guy who would do anything needed and weather any situation. The third man was Harry McNish. Shackleton selected the carpenter for several reasons. First, his skills may very well be needed on the voyage, and no one doubted his abilities as a carpenter. Second, he was a big and powerful man. And third, McNish was not the kind of guy Shackleton wanted to leave on Elephant Island, where he would brood and complain. Shackleton didn't want his negative energy to infect the others. The final two men were Thomas McCarthy and John Vincent, both able bodied and strong seamen. They were the kind of men you would need on a difficult voyage. Frank Wilde would be left in charge on Elephant Island and so it was mid-April 1917. The men of endurance were setting up their camp as well as preparing the James cared for a desperate voyage across 800 miles of open sea. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. I have a couple of comments before I sign off. This episode was a long one, and in a lot of ways a frustrating one. It consisted of a lot of waiting, and then teasing, and then more waiting. This was followed by more waiting, followed by the disappointment of nothing, and then some more waiting. You get the idea but I really wanted to tell this story because it so wraps up the frustration and the anxiety and the challenges these men endured. For them, it was absolutely awful. But that means that when the men finally land on Elephant Island, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they made it. It's a huge relief. I want to finish by acknowledging the work of Shackleton and his men to actually get to Elephant Island. There were so many times things could have gone wrong but they made it thanks to a mix of luck and patience and leadership and perseverance. And even when they made mistakes, like the Christmas push across the ice, well, they rebounded each time. It was pretty amazing. I do want to warn everyone that if you thought the journey to Elephant Island was a chore, well, I have to give you a heads up. It is nothing compared to what awaits us in our next episode. And I will just leave it at that and say I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Join us next time in our Shackleton series for the epic voyage of the James Caird. wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.